0: hello everyone Uh, we're doing something different today and wanted to provide some context before kicking things off several months ago it's march 15 2020 today a fellow podcaster named joshua responded to a panoptic related post on reddit and by the way reddit is an awesome place to say nice things about panoptic philosophy subreddits critical theory subreddits business subreddits wherever you enjoy content anyway joshua is the host of a podcast called our foundations that, quote, explores the evolution of our political, economic, and education systems as we analyze the past, present, and future of our society through history, economics, political theory, philosophy, alternative movements, technology, and more. Uh, Joshua is a self-described libertarian-leaning education professional with a background in business and a passion for economics, history, and politics. Hey, Jason. So, having listened to Panoptic's uh, previous episodes on
1: AI and strategic communications, Joshua was interested in having Jason and myself on the show for an interview focusing on big tech and governance. And given that the subject matter was relevant to both our audiences, we wanted to ensure that our conversation would be interesting, new, and beneficial to Panoptic listeners as well. So ultimately, we collaborated with Joshua to identify... Uh, a central connected connecting theme uh, so the constellations changing constellations of power is what we sort of settled on and we built out subtopics to discuss and debate along the way starting with the rise and fall of the classical bourgeois public sphere and ending with the introduction of big tech into the strategic actors toolkit in post 9 America along the way we explored the evolving relationship between corporations and the state, ideological shifts, mercenary groups, and more.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Juan. And first of all, I just want to thank Joshua for putting up with us and helping us accomplish what ended up being a four-hour conversation. We really covered a lot of new, interesting ground, and we did it in a collaborative way, in spite of any ideological differences we might have. So due to the length we are breaking it up into three parts. So today you're going to get part one of that collaboration with our foundations and uh, Juan Pablo, without giving away any uh, key moments, did uh, anything from our conversation with Joshua stand out to you?
1: Yeah. You know, I think what we talked a little bit about this off the record, but it, you know, I think what really stood out for me, Jason, is that there was a lot, I think of general agreement in sort of the overall narrative, right? Um, and the narrative sort of goes something like this, which is we have this we have this system, uh the liberal democratic system as it sort of arose kinda messily and 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 quasi naturally, you know, sort of reflecting on itself, but also just kind of arising from a set of struggles. Uh if we if we sort of just focus on the context of the specific history of Europe, let's say in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, particularly in the 18th century when it consolidates, when these sort of new nation states start to consolidate themselves. Uh, This this framework of governance uh, has had a sort of has changed, obviously, since that time. And some of the main changes that we can sort of track are a change in complexity, the level of complexity of the societies uh, and the way that power, governance are organized and structured. And I think what was really interesting is seeing how we were generally in agreement, I think, on our narrative of some of these major changes that have taken place and who the new actors are and how the actors have changed. i think what's really interesting about the conversation is seeing how we we attempted to struggled but also sometimes i think made some headway in trying to uh use uh abstract terms to come to get a sense of things like governance uh rights and 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 legal and and legal and sort of systems of rights as they're codified in their constitutional system and and how they might have uh, contributed or in a way already uh, almost in, had intrinsic to them changes that were going to be coming uh, that were inevitable. Let's say something I tried to emphasize over and over again when we were talking was in a system where we, where the assumption was the economic system, the market system, was self-regulating, but it was imperative that um, there was... A political democratic programming of the state uh when this assumption turned out to perhaps be faulty and uh there needed to be a regulation of markets to an extent in order to make sure that certain groups of the population were incorporated into political the political system or, or like had the capacity to participate so the complexity of the system the rise of things like the welfare state uh, and the diff- this key word, if we think about uh, sociologists like Nicholas Luhmann, differentiation, the becoming more sp- specialized of things like the legal system, the administrative state, the economic system, more complex, more uh, differentiated, more difficult to map from our specific human limited perspective. Uh it's this level of complexity and difficulty that we're all sort of trying to grapple with to an extent and the way that, for instance, we, we see how, how um, things like economic power are in some ways interconnected with the the administrative state with political power and, and hold a lot of influence. And so it becomes difficult to see how the original framework of the original ideals of sort of, 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 liberal democratic frameworks continue to be robust in the present time and i think we even if we so what i did what's interesting is even if we agreed in the narrative it's the it's it's how we are able to pick the right level of abstraction for when we need to talk about shifts of these sort of in, in terms of abstract concepts and when we need to be able to go and look at things in a concrete way and, and use concrete language to talk about specifics about the way things are different in different historical moments and understand how those changes might have happened. I think that accounts to some of our differences in the way we respond to these uh, dynamics of more complex, uh, more uh, differentiated Uh, larger systems based societies that someone sometimes seems almost to have nobody. It's like, we can't control them. They're unwieldy and they're beyond our power as a political community to sort of control. And yet um, I think that's being able to think about that change and in concrete terms, which I think we tried to do in the episode. And I think people hopefully will find that interesting will be is what, you know, is useful is important and is imperative especially in our time now as we're trying to uh, tackle a whole set of complex problems yeah so that stood out for me because joshua you know me and you talked about how we thought we we're going to be disagreeing with joshua perhaps to an extent given his political perspective and i think it was surprising how little we actually disagreed about a sort of diagnostic of the situation
0: i think we ended up having a an extremely productive conversation and yeah, i, I totally agree we didn't We didn't disagree with Joshua as aggressively as I thought we would. Uh, Maybe as I hoped I would, because (laughs) it would have made for a more uh, entertaining uh, episode. Yet, I I think we uh, really go deeper into these issues of the kind of development of big tech, how it ties back to the Enlightenment, making some hopefully useful analogies to the rise of advertisers and linking that to the fall of the uh, classical bourgeois public sphere. Mm-hmm. And even though you know we've talked about Habermas in the past, yeah. but I think in this one, we um, you know you help us, Juan, lay out a very useful kind of almost legal regulatory framework for understanding the flow of communicative action into the yeah. legislative sphere, into the executive sphere and into the ju- judicial sphere, and then how that feeds back into the public discourse. And I think that that right. was very useful. Yeah,
1: so it gives us a framework I think also for seeing how that original system right that original architecture that was that was dreamt up that was imagined that was put into place by by you know it was put into place in different ways with different emphasis in places like France and places in places like Great Britain and the United States uh, and then across the world and and in you know in Latin America after its independence independence uh, in in different countries in in Africa and in Asia after, you know, uh, these countries ceased to be co- European colonies in in, t- in the 70s, some of them in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So it really, uh, and some sometimes more robustly and sometimes more superficially, right? Um, there are authoritarian states with assembly, uh, you know, that kind of pay lip service to representative government. And they may have things like assemblies that are elected but are mostly but are still sort of authoritarian authoritarian in nature uh, but nonetheless right that legal that, that set of ideas as, that you mentioned gives us uh, that that was supposed to in a way uh, link what was to be a, a public or private citizens who had who really wanted to shore up a certain realm of autonomy, against the state on the one hand, but against other citizens on the one hand, uh, but made some assumptions in the process uh, and granted a set of political rights that really were the political rights of a specific group of people, right? Middle-class property owners. Um, not necessarily without... A, but at the same time with certain ideals of inclusion and participation, which then, by their own inertia, pushed and created the space for for opening up those rights... Uh, and creating things like, uh, creating things like actual tangible material rights that say, okay, well, you know, it's it's a mockery to say that you have the capacity to participate in the political system as a citizen if you have no, you know, if you are working seventy hours a week and have no basis, you know, you don't know if you're going to fired one day from the from one day to the next and don't have any any kind of material possibilities to actually have a a, a sort of basic standard of, of living. Um, how can you possibly be participating in the political system and, and therefore helping and program that system to be responsive to the needs of the, the public, right? Um, so it it I think it gives us a framework to seeing how that threadbare architecture becomes problematic now with this, these in, in our intensely globalized interconnected complex uh, world right
0: yeah and you know I, I also really appreciated how this kind of overarching theme we developed with Joshua enabled us to do more of a deeper dive into the world of private military contracting which if you've you've heard probably heard me mention it a few times on uh, previous episodes it's kind of a passion area of mine. And finally, yeah. looking at that from this unique perspective and seeing it connect to the rise of big tech and how all yeah. these changing constellations of power tie together. Um, I think that is something that will be different from what you've heard from us in the past and yeah. will be uniquely beneficial to Panoptic listeners as well as uh, our foundations listeners. And we'll set the stage for for further discussion on on that issue
1: yeah and i think uh, as you said jason that's gonna there's a lot to talk about there that maybe we didn't even that we still have to flesh out more right which is uh josh in particular wanted to emphasize i think things like the way the printing press and then things like mass media and then things like digital media are game changers in the way that information flows that public spheres are formed, that public opinion is formed, and therefore the way that the capacity for people to actually form a perspective on uh, what's going on, who are the players, the power players, how is power organized, and how can one influence it. And that we probably have to talk about that a little more because that's a key element of, the key communications dimension of what we the things we're talking about. But I really want to emphasize Emphasize too that if we if we go that route, then it's important. Then it's interesting to start thinking about things like law, like uh, like money, and or what we call specific would be considered uh, communications media as different elements of a ecology of media that structure the way we interact, right? Uh, and that's where it's really interesting. I think that also gives us another framework for thinking about uh, how liberal democratic systems were a sort of allocation of areas of action based on the certain assumptions right uh, because the private this because the market was considered sort of this fear of people private people acting in their egotistical interests uh, and fulfilling their sort of life projects without uh, it, without intervention by the state um, therefore there was a sort of assumption all these people acting there because they're fulfilling their sort of personal life goals and interests through this market system and acquisition will all add up to a sort of common public good and therefore we must protect in a system of rights must not only protect the sort of the autonomy of the individual in the sense of their expression and things like that but also, in terms of their action here in this sphere of strategic actions, and this gets us back to this discussion we've had, Jason, about strategic versus communicative action. Uh, and the, and and, but on the other hand, the the legal, the law, as a sort of media that structures action, uh, also created a, was supposed to, in a sense, be programmed by the. Public at large, in terms of its legitimacy, right? Every law is supposed to not. Our laws are not supposed to be in our sort of system. Are not supposed to be uh, based on some ethical framework about what people consider to be the best way to live culturally. They're supposed to be regulate action regardless of what people feel about that action, in the, in the benefit of the general the general populace, right? Um we don't put we don't we don't uh put people in jail because they think a law is wrong. We put them in jail if they break the law, right? So it's a really interesting if you think about it from that context, it structures interactions, but it doesn't necessarily ask you to be a moral individual.
0: Right? It just asks you to follow rules. And what it's would the following system? Would that type of influence be communicative or strategic? Or it's bold. it's a
1: little it's an interesting and that's an interesting question. It's supposed to be it's supposed to be, the laws are supposed to be programmed theoretically, right? They're supposed to be programmed in a communicative sense. People are supposed to come together and based on all the differences are supposed to come up with laws that are universally acceptable. So you might be, Jason, you might be uh, from a different religion than I am and a different perspective and have different ethical values and I might be very different, but because we live in this sort of liberal democratic system, we're supposed to come up with a law that regulates our interactions in the public sphere, in the general interest, not because of your specific ethical beliefs about the ultimate realm and how the good is supposed to look like. Not in terms of your values of what a good life would look like, but in terms of the general interest of the maximization of freedom and autonomy for individuals. So if you think about it that way, it's really interesting because money, law, uh, and... The media itself, the media, and when I'm talking about the media, is mass communications, the newspapers, and now digital media are that specific. Those are the three sort of realms uh, uh, mediating our interactions. One is communicative, one is a mix of communicative and sort of like coercive and strategic, you could almost say. Uh, it's, it's supposed to regulate p- politics and and it's supposed to have it's also it's also mirrored in our division of powers right so that you have an ex- one body making the law one body executing it supposedly dispassionately and one body reviewing to make sure that it's in line with the constitutional framework and then you have money which is an interesting another interesting media for regulating interactions and what how people act and it's supposed to be it's supposed to it's not it's amoral right it's not moral it's not good, it's not bad. It's money simply, it regulates, it gives you signals telling you, hey, this costs this much because there's so much of it in terms of what are people want and there's so much of it in terms of how you can get it and how easy it is to pr- get to the market and so forth. Uh, a very effective, powerful way to exchange things, but as we've talked about over over again, with once with a very narrow rationality. In a very narrow logic, it it doesn't have, it's like a, as I've tried to sort of suggest, it's like a train that goes in one direction, and it's very powerful, but it it also can be very destructive, right? So, I mean, I think this gives us, that's another way in which this, we have to keep talking about that in our future episodes. Yeah. Uh, that realm of what I think is a communicative, communication-based uh, slash- media-focused, and, and technology-focused, because if you can also think of these as technologies, money as a technology where uh, cash is a technology, right? Uh, credit is a technology. Finance is a technology that regulates an our inter- interactions. And that if we don't think about it that way, we start thinking about these things as natural things that sort of like just are exist, and that's how they should be, and that we can't reconfigure them to incentivize different types of action in, in line with our ultimate goal of sort of enf- enhancing autonomy of the individual and autonomy of of the political community, right?
0: Yeah. Well, against my uh, com- compulsion to keep this going, uh, and we could have a, a fourth episode on our hand here if yep. we keep going. So, <laughs> so uh, to, to our listeners, I think, You've got a, a nice synopsis and a reflection on what the uh, three parts with our uh, collaboration with our foundations is going to be like, and then you've got a preamble to some future conversations as well. So yeah. I don't know. Uh, I say let's let's call it there, and we'll get into the yeah. conversation with Joshua. And just uh, definitely, you know, just to again thank Joshua. You know, please check out. Uh, His podcast, Our Foundations, on Apple, and you can find it on other pod platforms. And you can learn more about the show at ourfoundations.podbean.com.
1: And one thing we haven't said in a while, Jason, is to make sure people are checking out our Patreon uh, if they're really enjoying what they're hearing and they want to support our podcast uh, as we move forward with it. Uh, you should check out our patreon oh, it's, the link is on our website um, it is where else is it jason
0: yeah if you go to www.panopticpod.com mm-hmm. you can find our patreon i don't know the uh the handle for patreon off the top of my head but yeah, it should be pretty our, easy it's to our, find it's on our,
1: it's on our website
0: we're coming up on uh once we get through this series we'll be at uh 14 or 15 episodes i believe so um and you know audience has been growing steadily so yeah if you you have been listening from the beginning and you you're still enjoying it and you want to give us 50 cents per episode a dollar per episode whatever you can manage that would be uh, hugely appreciated all right well let's get into it with joshua and uh thank you everyone for tuning in the views that i express on this podcast are mine and the same for our co-host Juan pablo well there he is panoptic relating theories of communication power and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life welcome to the podcast
2: you want me to go ahead and just do my introduction we'll get on with it yeah josh how you doing i'm doing good um my name is joshua and i am the host for the our foundations podcast uh, my podcast focuses on Roughly on a survey of the evolution of society as a whole, and I focus on the systems within our society. So for season one, I looked at our governmental and monetary and education systems and things like political theory and economics, that kind of stuff, and how those started, how they evolved, some corruptions along the way, and some of the issues with what's going on today, as well as some alternative movements like blockchain and homeschooling and things like this. And so that was season one, and now I'm introducing season two, which will be another look at the evolution of society, but I'm using a historical parallel of the time of the Reformation and the printing press and the historic church, and I'm comparing that to modern times with modern anti-establishment movements and the nation-state, which now uh, fills a lot of the roles that the church did, and the internet, that obviously has a lot of parallels with the printing press. And so I'm bringing on some other podcast hosts and experts that are coming on and introducing a lot of these ideas, giving a lot of context and background and fleshing out some of these ideas. And then for the rest of the season two of my podcast, I'll be going deep into one parallel at a time and really fleshing out what we can draw from these parallels and what that shows us about what's going on today, helps us to better understand different trends and movements, and uh, gives us a look into the future of possibly how these things will play out and what types of trends and signs to look for. All right. That sounds really interesting. Jason, uh, do you want to, do you
1: want to let the the listeners know a little bit about uh, our yeah, podcast? Let's do
0: that. Yeah, that, that was super fascinating. So this is actually our first time collaborating with any uh, other podcast being on anyone else's show. Um, so thank you, Joshua, for actually a, uh, allowing us to make this a shared episode because I think we're going to be covering issues that are interesting to both of our audiences. Yeah, I think so. So, uh, who are we? Uh, my name's Jason. I'm a consultant. I focus on strategic communications and change management. And our co host.
1: My name's uh, Juan Pablo, uh, Jason's co host, friend, uh, partner in crime. I am doing a PhD in modern thought and literature at Stanford University. And uh, love doing this podcast with Jason, where we talk about communications, media, power, uh, and how they you know and, pract- and how it affects practical everyday life.
0: Yeah, so what is Panoptic? Essentially, the, the core theme of our podcast is conversations between a critical theorist and a management consultant. And uh, we find that there are some interesting intersections between our respective lines of work. And we've been having these conversations for years and we thought maybe we could continue to explore these intersections uh, in a way that others might find yeah. uh, useful. So as Juan said, we we try to relate theories of communication, power and technology to practical institutional issues yeah. and everyday life. that's, that's, so, that's definitely uh, right
1: and it's a work in progress still. Our aim is as panoptic is to bring together academic and technical discourses that have to do with communications and power um and philosophy and bring them into context where we can really apply them in one way or another and maybe even translate it into a language that hopefully is accessible so I think in some ways uh, I'm interested to see you know Josh thanks for the invitation to chat with you and uh, you know some of the stuff you touch upon is stuff that I think we have a perspective um, a communications media power perspective that we might bring to the table so i'm curious to see um how our interests link up
2: yeah yeah i definitely think that what you guys do and the types of things you talk about do have a very direct correlation with, I guess, probably the later half of um, this upcoming season in my podcast, where I start talking about the future and the trends that are going on and how technology impacts all these things. It'll be uh, some similar things with philosophy and technology and corporate influence and media and media literacy, all these types of things, which I have heard you guys talk about on your show. Show. so I think we've got a lot of good connections there.
1: Excellent. Well I'm, I'm looking forward to getting started you know let's how do you uh, I know you had some questions for us or some some uh, frameworks that you wanted to approach this conversation with is that right?
2: Yeah yeah basically what I am doing for my show in this season is doing this parallel between the Reformation time and now, And I will be interjecting probably some ideas throughout the show. And I think probably near the end of this episode, I'll um, maybe go into those in a little more detail and we'll get a little more future oriented. Uh, But before that, I did want to start with some of the things that you guys have introduced on your show before, but basically kind of what's going on right now and how... How are we shifting as a society? There's this thing that is known as this fourth industrial revolution, and there's a lot of things associated with that. And could you introduce kind of that idea and how that influences and impacts our society today?
0: Sounds great, Joshua. Juan, should I, can I take this? Yeah, go ahead. So one interpretation of our modern reality is that, as you said, Joshua, we're entering a kind of fourth industrial revolution. And that's characterized by big data, automation, and from a certain perspective, surveillance technologies. And as part of this revolution, we see the expansion of corporate influence through technology and evolving relationships between the state and corporate actors. And these things have distinct sociopolitical political discursive effects. So effects on our conversations and knowledge and learning. So as part of this uh, collaboration between uh, Panoptic and our foundations, we wanted to discuss changing constellations of power, communication, and technology um, throughout European European history and their impacts to the experience of agency in the modern world. So I I think we can discuss these artifacts both independently and collectively, and we can uh, also discuss how they might parallel or run against certain uh, ancient knowledge that... uh, you've covered on quite a bit of uh, your episodes, Joshua. So my sense is that we might agree on on a lot of stuff uh, on the historical analysis, but uh, we might disagree on some of the political analysis and prescriptions. Yeah, hopefully so.
2: That'll make it interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. So I'm not sure I have a very compelling answer to what we should make of these changing constellations of power, but I think we can have... You know, again, uh, an interesting conversation here, nonetheless.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and to begin with, you mentioned these shifts in power and how the corporate world and governmental world... Um, things are shifting within those and the roles that they play in our society. And I, I have covered this before and uh, talked about some of these things, such as the influence through censorship. Uh, technology companies are mainly the gatekeepers of information for society as a whole today, especially social media companies and Google for a search company. But all these companies that deal with, like you said, big data, and they have a huge impact. And part of that is being these gatekeepers and through censorship and uh, deciding what information is out there and what is promoted, as well as using all that data they collect for marketing and for propaganda And you have this not only with uh, big tech and these big data companies, social media companies, but you also see it in the media with that's where we get most of our news. And the majority of the mainstream news networks are all owned by just a couple corporations, international corporations that own pretty much every mainstream news outlet. So that's a lot of power to be held. And I've heard some newscasters talk about this before that, when they go on to present the news, there is this basically sheet of paper. It's like an outline for the previous day's top headlines and the top stories. And I've heard some uh, announcers actually say in interviews that that's where they draw a lot of what they talk about on their respective shows and on these news outlets. And so that is a... It's definitely something where you have a lot of influence and a lot of power. Whoever is creating these rough outlines and these summaries, they're, in a sense, choosing what stories get played and what stories get discussed and how that is presented to the public. And so... Of course, you can have uh, very dystopian and conspiracy-oriented outlooks on this, or you can just say that maybe it's just a little too much power in the hands of few. And so there's definitely an influence there. But the point is that it's big tech, it's the media, and then you also have corporations as a whole and oftentimes they project their influence through foundations. That's been something that I've talked about multiple times on my show with, especially with like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment. Um, you have things like the Gates Foundation and Ford Foundation. They have a lot of influence on society through these nonprofit organizations. And when they do this, they do a lot of good. They do a lot of good things for society. They donate to good causes, and they definitely educate the public in a lot of good ways. However, we do have some congressional investigations in particular—that's kind of more hard fact, I'll stick to that—that have shown that these nonprofit foundations have made attempts and at times been successful in having large influences on government and on society through these interactions that they have with the university system, for example, with the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations and things like this. So you have these corporations that are not necessarily affecting society in that form of being a corporation, but they have this other branch that's a foundation, that's something separate. It's not looked on with as much scrutiny as the corporation is. And uh, a lot of times they do a lot of things, some of them good, some of them bad. And a lot of it depends on your perspective, but it does have a big influence on society. And then probably the last way I can think of would be that corporations influence society just through being employers. You have the employer-employee relationship And a lot of that is being disrupted in this um, upcoming gig economy. And so that's definitely a factor there as well. But the point is that you have this corporate influence that affects all these different areas and all these different ways. And these are ways that might not have really existed historically. But now that we have this new technology and the internet and this 24-7 news cycle it's a big deal. And it's not only society, but it's government as well, through campaign contributions and offering ex-politicians board seats on their companies and getting people on their board to get political seats in government and lobbyists that are a lot of times writing legislation themselves because they're the experts. So uh, from one perspective, they're the right people to write it. They're in the industry. They know what's going on. They have the information. But from another perspective, their incentives might be a little off from what many in the public would wish for. But you also have government contracts where you have government money flowing to corporations. You've got public-private partnerships, which are very similar. And so just overall, we see that corporations today have a very big impact on society. They have a very big impact on government. And there are just many different ways that these dynamics play out and that these uh, really, yeah, these power dynamics that exist between corporations and us. And I think that's something that is very important to to flesh out, to understand, to try to figure out, and um,
0: ideally, to be aware of
2: both the pros and the cons of all this.
0: Interesting. Well, I propose, let's study some of these shifts in kind of the fourth industrial revolution period. Uh, but maybe... One way we can set the context for kind of going, doing a deeper dive into all this is by going back in time a little bit. You know, you're talking about journalism and media. So maybe let's try to understand what did media look like at a, at a certain time? What were the kinds of discursive traditions that maybe we aspire to? And, and then how does that relate to the... Uh, rise of certain capitalist forces that you're talking about and new relationships between the government and the state. And Juan, I know you had a a lot of interesting uh, perspective to add to this conversation.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, responding to the things Joshua is bringing up, it's important, I think, uh, as we try to parse it out, right? It's, uh, It's important to take maybe first a long perspective before we shorten and look at the present. Um, because there's all these changes and all these different types of technologies and and as you were talking, as, I think as you were doing a good job of summarizing Joshua, there's all there are all these apparent uh, problems of interests, uh, clashes of interests uh, that are taking place, right which affect directly affect people's capacity to access information, make sense of information, and then um, and also, Uh, You talked in one direction, I think, which is the direction of media as they project information and communication out, and also as the other direction, which is how do people's and people's opinion actually get filtered into the system, uh, into the supposedly democratic system, right, in a way that it is a certain sort of democratic process that's the one programming, let's say, policies, rather than... uh, powerful interests that might have uh, their own interests at stake that that might uh, not be the general interest. So to, to take a step back, I would suggest, and I think it's really f- helpful as a framing for us to think historically about where you know where we've come from and where we are, particularly in societies in, in the Western world, um, to look at Havermas's con- notion of the the public sphere and his notion of what it means to be a modern society. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that he's, these fr- this framing is 100% correct, but I, I think it gives us a, a guideline to to sort of discuss, right? And, and it's, he, you know, from a historical perspective, he talks about how modernity is characterized by, uh, by you know the shift from basically community to society, and what does that mean necessarily? What does that mean the shift from community to society? He's looking at things here um, y- using a sociological set of concepts, and one of the ones that he's focusing on is how uh, people relate to each other discursively through language. This is the primary media that structures communications in the, in human society. It's this technology, of course, that, in a way, is very unique to human beings um, and how we use it. But what really characterizes modernity is what he calls the almost the uh, the differentiation. He calls it, but that's just a fancy word for sort of like the decoupling, the almost like becoming autonomous of what he calls functional subsystems. You know, what are these? What what is he talking about? The market. And the administrative state. Now, and what happens, according to Habermas, is these are sort of disconnected from that discursive realm where people sort of talk face to face and make decisions about, you know, what the world is like, uh, make arguments about what's right, you know, what the world is like, uh, what it's like, what's what it's what's the right way to interact, and, and what they're you know what they're thinking or feeling. These subsystems become detached. Uh, and what they have is their own media for regulating action between people. For instance, the market has money. Money is a is a media. If you think about what is money at the end of the day, it's a sort of set of it's a it's a it's a media that has that carries information uh, that can serve logistical ends, and it can also serve to sort of store value. But it also inter- it also through the signals that it sends out it mediates people's interaction in the market uh on the other hand you have the state now for 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 habermas unlike let's say i think a lot of libertarian thinkers uh these things are not sort of like they don't you can't have one without the other you have uh the rise of the market is the rise of the administrative state it's a rise of a centralized territorial state that uh that relies, on, that relies on taxation in order to recoup revenues, to have a professional standing army, to control that territory. Um, the, and and it's, he, we're talking here about a specific historical moment in European history uh, in the 18th century, where what used to be a bunch of sort of uh, more or less, toward an extent, decentralized territorial units, uh, alliances between feudal lords, and so forth, Slowly start melt, you know, merging into these l- large modern nation states, uh, according to Harma. So that gives us a framework, and and we could talk more. We could get more into the weeds about what what his actually historical narrative of how this happens is, uh, which I think is more detailed. It has to do with things like the rise of banking and commercial u- commerce in in the Italian. Uh, City states in the Renaissance, uh, the way that this reshaped governance and so forth. And I can go into that in a little bit, but this this way of thinking, which by the way, you can also think about uh, about the way it's codified in the law, the way our modern system of law works, it our positive system of law. That means enacted law, passed law, right? It is it works in in it has two main divisions. It has private law, which is. The law of what you're basically what your rights are as a as an individual, right? What your rights are vis a vis the government against you know vis a vis other people, what they cannot do to you, what the government can't do to you, what you can do with your property, et cetera, and then civil law, public law, the law that's about access to the political system, access in terms of civil rights, um, and so forth, and this in a sense maps on into our the structure of our constitutional system you have a legislative branch which is supposed to be the only branch that creates law you have the executive branch which is supposed to apply law of course and we all know this this is kind of basic civics 101 but i think it's interesting to link it to how our how our judicial system is is sort of sorry sorry our, leg, our legal system is set up and to how, uh, and, and Havermas claims about differentiation. And we have our judicial system, which is supposed to review law. It's supposed to review the application of law. Does, is the law applied correctly in this specific case? Uh, now, what the flow that's supposed to take place ideally, or that was sort of imagined in this sort of classic, you know, what, what Havermas calls the classic bourgeois public sphere, and this is from a, you know one of his early books. It's called The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere. He talks about how with the rise of the public sphere, which is, was the sphere of private citizens that belonged not to the state and not to the official market, but between, and who interacted uh, discursively in, in venues like houses, salon, uh, salons, salons, that uh, through uh, epistolary practices, so letter writing, and through the press, through writing in the in the press, but this this was a, a press that had not yet been completely commercialized. So, you know, little presses where they would basically write their opinions, they would critique government actions, and what's really crucial for Habermas is the way this 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 sphere, sort of, of civil society, the public sphere, was supposed to, in a way. Uh, because it had arisen because it was because what the administrative state did uh, affected them directly as private citizens, people who acted in the market, which was mediated by money, the regulations of the state affected them. Therefore they saw it necessary to create mechanisms to in a way control the state, to say to say, hey, whatever you do affects us as private citizens. Your public legislation affects us. So the mechanisms that we understand as part of civil society, free speech, free assembly, uh, eventually, you know, sort of representative legislative branch that is supposed to be the carrier of public opinion and turn that, transform that public opinion into law that programs that basically administration, basically the rules that manage the market at large, which is, which if you, you know, it's really, it's a paradox. It's, the sphere of private action—it's supposed to be regulated by money. It's supposed to be self-regulating, but the state has to sort of create certain conditions for it to work. So, this flow of public, of sort of communic, of sort of uh, opinion, is supposed to go from the public sphere to the legislative branch, and then to the executive as as applying sort of basically this public will, right? So, this is sort of like the classic idea of the public sphere. Now. What happens is, according to Habermas, to an extent is that, and we could, we could I think, we could argue whether this is the right, uh, whether this historical re- recounting is correct, is that with as the market sort of became more powerful, as it grew, as it became more consolidated, one of the elements that took place was the sort of expansion into the cultural realm, the turning into commodities of things like press of things like culture. So that the realm of culture, which was the realm of where the bourgeois, as as Howard Moss calls them, the middle classes, basically, which were which were acting critically in the public sphere and, and gauging or developing their subjectivity, their personhood through interaction in, in the discursive and literary spheres. These became basically uh, new spheres of sort of commodity and industrial production. These goods, like the press, became, uh, I mean, to put it in a sort of a pithy pithy phrase, the right to freedom of the press became the right to buy a press. Uh, Something goes with what you're talking about, Joshua. So now you had these big consortiums that bought uh, press and it it was no longer clear um, what was being transmitted by the press. Was it uh, individual citizens' critical perspectives or was it, advertising in in cloak right in, in in sheep's clothing second in second in a secondary sense for havermas what other other also happens which to him is intrinsic to to the system of rights uh, as it exists the sort of liberal democratic system of rights which we inherit from the enlightenment tradition is the the that tension between private law and civil law between private interest and the the general public interest, already presages the rise of an administrative state. Why? The market's tendency towards monopolies, towards affecting the political system, calls for a reaction by the political system to sort of bound the market through the rise of the administrative state. And as workers' movements, feminist movements, and so forth, enter that public sphere, they start clamoring for uh, what are called more material rights. So things, you know, what is very much associated with uh, what we would call the rise of the administrative state or the welfare state, things like transfer and tax programs that are about giving people health care, giving people workers certain rights, you know, the weekend, 40-hour work week, uh, and so forth. We could go into detail of that. So this this media theoretical perspective about how people in their everyday life interact in what's called a sort of a life world that discursively... Elaborated world where people talk in using language and they're talking, they're making arguments uh, based on language and based on what however, Musk calls validity claims what's right, what's wrong. This is supposed to, ideally, the, the transfer of public opinion, which is in a way uh, being formed and in inter- an interaction with the media, with the mass media, that, you know, in, in, shortly after that period of the of the classic bourgeois public sphere you know the mass press and so forth and later it would be tv radio etc now it's even more complicated we'll get there but that public opinion is supposed to transfer in and on not only for elections but also through through the media itself into a kind of through representatives in the legislative in the legislative branch it's supposed to program the administrative the administrative branch and it's supposed to program um that kind of regulation of the market and so forth. But again, if the media, uh, if it's ambiguous whether the media is advertising in cheap clothing and it's simply sort of registering strategic actions by groups that only are haggling for material interests uh, rather than sort of discursively figuring out what's best in the general interest, these are these we can see these as sort of like short circuits of this flow of communication where on the one hand you have law as being the media that sort of regulates the administrative and and power and the regulation of power who gets power how they how they wield it law is supposed to neutralize it right uh, money is supposed to be the one that in the pub private sphere in this model regulates our private interactions my let's say my interactions uh, in the market in terms of my my private interests. Uh, so there's all these tensions there in this in the way that, in the way that this uh, in the way that this, if we think about it from that media theoretical perspective in the way that these specific media, language, law and and money frame human interactions in different contexts, whether it's through whether it's access to power, whether it's deciding what's best for everybody, or whether it's um, acting in your own self-interest, right? So that's where that's where, in a sense, we come from. Um, you know, I think it gets even more complex if we start talking about what has happening to governance today, when we start bringing into the picture, as we will in a little bit, things like algorithms, data, uh, but also what's happened to the market since the time of, let's say, that of the quote-unquote classic bourgeois public sphere. Um, how how the, the systems of, of the law have had to react to that and how the administrative state has changed in relation to that.
0: And Juan, can you tell us where Habermas's concept of strategic action fits into all of this? Because I yeah, think that's a good question. strategic action is kind of central to one of the core themes of where this uh, hi- historiographical analysis could go.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question and helps me, I think, make uh, hopefully define these ideas a little more exactly. So... In, the, in our everyday life, you know, in our sort of everyday face-to-face life, according to Habermas, we're, because we're interacting using language, we have to, we're forced in a way, or we we ultimately make assumptions which are, if we have to agree about anything, we are using communicative, what he calls communicative action. In our everyday discussion, we are making validity claims which... Which in three different spheres, according to him. And the sphere of what the world is like, like and you know, we've talked a lot about this a lot in our podcast, Jason, but what the world is like, you know, if I tell you, hey, the sky's blue, you know, you could check that and if I was if I were wrong, you could look at it and say, Hey, that's wrong or whatever, right? Uh that's one sphere. The social normative sphere, what's right what's the right thing to do, what's okay, what's not okay, what's considered wrong, right? And And the and the sort of aesthetic, personal, subjective sphere. So, things that as I as an individual am privy to: my thoughts, my ideas, my feelings, my my goals, my interests, which I could lie about. But over time, my actions would, in a way, reveal. Right. So, two of these fears are basically a third, a second, and third person can check. When I when I say something about the world or about the social world, and they can argue about my validity claims, so that discursive realm is basically about you know it's very much intrinsically tied to argumentation and to validity claims. Let's just set that aside. So it's a communicative realm, according to Habermas. Whereas the market, and the way it's set up in our modern system, the market is regulated by money. Right when 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 the with the downfall of of the aristocracies, the old regime in Europe, the feudal classes and so forth, and the rise of of the middle classes of capitalism, modern day capitalism, the institutionalization of that regime into law into pr- into positive law with in a system of rights that if you th- I mean if you think about it that's what we have a system of rights of private rights and civil rights those private rights set aside property is a sphere of action that is not to be regulated by the government but to be regulated by money it's supposed to be a self-regulating system that's money it's supposed to regulate strategic action this is not action that's regulated by argumentation about what's right what the world is actually like what is actually okay and what i actually believe it's a strategic realm where we as actors are competing against each other for private gain in the form of which is monet, which is measured in the form of profit, um, in the in the interact in the interaction of goods and services, right? So if you, that's a strategic realm. Money is a media that doesn't that gives you information that's useful in strategic action, not in communicative action. We're not coming to an agreement through money about two things that we can actually agree on together and say, you know what, I agree with your reasons and your validity that, and your claims that you're making. Money is not like that. Money is an information uh, processing media that is not about whether we agree or something. It gives me signals for how I can act strategically. But money, again, neutralizes it within a in a framework that is legally acceptable in the modern context. Um, that is the difference between, I think, strategic action for for Moss and communicative action. Uh, One is about us, let's say, coordinating a set of actions based on a mutual agreement. And one is about uh, in the market, specifically, for instance, uh, let's say getting more profit than the competition through reading those signals correctly. Uh, It's not about sort of coming to an agreement with people about something that we... It's not about coordinating actions based on some set of shared values or interests. It's about me... Carrying out actions in my private interest uh, in this neutralized realm, which is detached from linguistic and discursive communications, and in a sense from value evaluations, from value judgments, from normative claims of what's right and wrong. Of course, then that's why inevitably you'll, you're going to get something like, a nor- like an administrative state that, in a way, is supposed is supposed to bound, regulate the market to an extent in order to perf- in order to defend. Or in in a sense balance, private interest and public interest, right? This these are the two traditions in a way that you could say you could say that these are the two traditions that are that we are. It's still very much acting within the republican tradition, and I'm not saying republican in the U.S. sense. I'm talking about republican in the Rousseau in Rousseau sense, uh, the tradition that thinks of the political community as coming to know itself through the through the political system, uh, as a community, sort of uh, the majority coming to power and and having a public ethos, and the liberal, which is the liberal tradition, which is about defending the rights of individuals, civil rights. I'm sorry, defending the rights of individuals, human rights, um, autonomy, freedom of speech, and so forth, and 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 defending that in the political system. So you see how these are at tension, right? Um, creating, creating both a system that allows for for uh, private individuals to have a sense, a sort of realm of autonomy that is to an extent detached from making a decision about what we all agree about in terms of values, and then the kind of political will formation of voting and deciding what we think is best for society and the public interest. So our law very much carries and is, in a sense, harbors this tension within it in the, in those settings so it's strategic action jason i think uh, is non-discursive action it's it's action where i'm trying to get you to do something or i'm trying to i'm trying to get a reaction or an effect but not because i convince you linguistically or discursively that that's the case but because basically because i'm actually strategically right i'm trying to get an effect i'm not trying to get an agreement uh money in the realm of money in the market is very much a strategic realm it's not about trying to get people's agreements it's about trying to understand and read the signals in order to get a leg up uh if you're a firm for instance or if you're a consumer trying to get a good deal right Right.
0: so so you and i might differ still a little bit on what we think we can do if we can do anything good or 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 not with strategic action or strategic communication we've actually done quite a bit of episodes on this i wanted to give joshua's audience just like a taste of kind of maybe where we disagree on this and i also think kind of digging into this concept of strategic action will be useful as we start looking at what the uh, markets are doing the modern markets are doing with strategic action today in kind of the in the like the contracting sphere and also in the big tech sphere um as a practitioner of strategic action or communication strategic communication uh myself kind of within the context of the firm um when i think about strategic action or communication in the applied sense i'm thinking about communicating with intent to influence beliefs attitudes uh, and or behaviors um and this might this is distinct from what habermas is talking about in some ways um i don't yeah. think about it in the applied sense as um distinctly tied to a media of money although um That's certainly an interesting and useful perspective. That's just,
1: and I would, let me clarify, Jason, before I let you go on. So that would just be one realm of strategic action, which is mediated by money. But that's not, you know, that's not the only form of strategic action, nor the only, nor is money the only way that strategic action manifests itself.
0: Got it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think from Habermas standpoint, communicative action, as you articulated, it's kind of this collaboration with others to increase understanding there's mutual deliberation and argumentation that's happening. Um, you know, in, in previous episodes, we likened this to kind of like an ideal form of the Socratic method. Um, but on the other hand, strategic action is like secretive and and hyper individualistic, and it seeks to hide or distort the truth to affect outcomes. And. You know, even after endlessly debating the ethics of strategic communication with Yuan, uh, I'm not not ready to die on the hill for Hoppermos, but um, I thought I'd offer some bullets from our debate and then I can let uh, both of you comment if you have any thoughts. Um, sure. So I want to suggest that it's very difficult to draw a fine line between communicative and strategic action in the real world. You know, as we see in Plato's Republic, on the surface, Socrates, he engages in open deliberation and argumentation with his peers, and he's trying to unveil the true nature of justice. But upon closer inspection, an alternative view of Socrates' behavior is that he is playing with the emotions of the, the one vulnerable Thrasymachus. And Socrates, he, he flaunts his superior intelligence, he cross-examines his fellow interlocutors into oblivion, and he takes great pleasure in the whole ordeal. So this wasn't communicative action when I think of what that means it's um, you know it's not that completely it was there's a lot of ego and power and selfishness involved in this process. <laughs> so according to this alternative view Socrates was acting strategically. And that brings me to a second point. So even when we feel that we are acting altruistically at any given moment we can conceive of selfish motivations and utilitarian outcomes existing in superposition to our attempted altruism so basically when i give the homeless person five dollars or stand on the bus so so the uh, elderly veteran can sit down i get a dopamine boost and i give myself a pat on the back for being such a good person um i i gather our, our communication is probably subject to the same physics but you know think about how do we build relationships Partly by connecting, relating, and empathizing with others through communication. And what do relationships do for us? Well, they pay emotional and tangible dividends. They can help us get through difficult times. Sometimes they even pay the rent or our medical expenses when we cannot. So we may not expect these dividends, but we receive them nonetheless. My suggestion is that we could observe any average social interaction and identify semblances of strategy operating behind the scenes. And I have two more points. So next one, strategy is necessary to build relationships and increase mutual gain. So look no further than the negotiation literature. It's no coincidence that within that literature, you're going to find that people are in a state of perpetual negotiation. And negotiation can be scary, intimidating, and mistrusting. Uh, We often don't believe that others want what is best for us. And at some level, we may even view our friends and family through the same lens, So how do we cut through the fear and suspicion to get what we want, not just the one negotiator, but all negotiators? And how do we maximize mutual gain and and mutual understanding in a situation where either party is not willing to engage in good faith, you know, to hear you honestly? So whether you take the rational Harvard approach, which is codified in in the book Getting to Yes— Or Chris Voss's psychological approach in the book, Never Split the Difference, and we we talked about those two approaches in one of our episodes. You know, thoughtful strategy is absolutely essential to achieving your goals and building lasting, valuable relationships. So we can dig into that if we want. But um, first, to wrap this up... Very often, effective strategy involves level setting and being transparent about your interests and goals and appealing to objective criteria. And these strategic recommendations can easily be mistaken for communicative actions in the Habermasian sense, but to my eye, they are still strategic insofar as they seek to affect utilitarian outcomes in practice. So in this way, communicative action itself can, I'd submit, at least function as a kind of strategy. So what are the key takeaways here for me? Uh, I don't believe we can clearly distinguish communicative and strategic acts. Everyday social interactions exude strategy, and strategy is oftentimes good for us. Um, Okay, but here's what I'm willing to concede. When we look at advertising and social engineering, especially in the age of big tech, those types of things, you know, artifacts of modern capitalism, strategic action becomes visibly problematic. And that's where I'll, I'll yeah pause
1: yeah and and i think you're i think you make some good points jason because uh i think if we translate this to what you know what we've been talking about in terms of what are the systems that regulate our interactions and then we can get to i think updating and get to the point to the modern point which i think i'm sure joshua is anxious to do as well
2: yeah yeah i've actually got some comments to make on uh the historical front paralleling now Um, based off of some of the things you said, Juan, when you were talking about um, banking and the role of money. Something that stuck in my head is that the parallel that I draw is the rise of the merchant banking class, like the Medici is the prime example here. And they kind of rose to power prior to the Renaissance and in many ways inspired and initiated the Renaissance. They funded a lot of the artists, a lot of the painters and poets and different people, and a lot of them stayed within the plaza of the Medici, within their household, so to say, and they conversed there, they had discourses, they all talked about different intellectual ideas, they shared their art together, and this is the picture that you're painting with this kind of ideal public discourse that you're talking about ideas, you have disagreements, but you discuss them, you try to come to a conclusion as a community, you build relationships. And we did see that happen then. And the parallel that I make to the Medici in modern times would be the rise of big tech. So both the merchant bankers and big tech today, they rely on building networks, they rely on on information, and it really doesn't matter about a specific product. The Medici were involved in many different types of goods and services. Banking was the primary, but they got into a lot of different things, and I think the same is true with big tech. They have the networks behind the scenes. They use the data in many different ways, and they can be involved in many different industries. And when we see the public discourse that occurs today, there is a similarity there where Just like at that period in time, there was a big influence by the Medici and some people uh, similar to them, we see the same thing with big tech today in that we have the internet and these social media companies, and many of those are who we would include in this category of big tech. And that's where a lot of the public discourse, so to say, is occurring today. A lot of it's occurring on the internet and through different online platforms and things like this. And so, uh, also mentioned was back to the time of Plato and Socrates. And at that point in time, you had the academy. And the whole point of the academy, Plato's academy, was to have discourse. That was kind of their whole method of learning and of interacting together. And then, when you jump ahead to the times prior and after the Reformation, you have the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period we do see this rise of the bourgeois public spear that um, Habermas talks about and this was something that it wasn't necessarily the prime intent and purpose of these people meeting up. They would just meet up in coffee shops and in local places. They would get together, they would have this discourse, and they were private citizens having discourse and getting together, building relationships. But that wasn't their primary goal in life. They didn't wake up in the morning, go specifically to one place, have these discourses all day, and that's what they did. It was something that was... Kind of on the side, um, but it was very important and very effective. I know Habermas many times says that that is the key to having a truly successful democracy. You have to have this open public discourse. Well, when you jump into modern times, this discourse, like I mentioned, that occurs online is one that's not even just a side issue, it's more of an entertainment venue. And people do have some legitimate discourse that actually matters and might be slightly intellectual. But if you look at the broad scope of interaction online through these social media platforms, you're not really getting a whole lot of intellectual conversation. And so that's one of the hesitations I have And one of the negative attributes I see in today's time is that we do have a lot of these parallels, and we do see a lot of similar movements, but today's movement does have some important differences, and so that's going to have an effect. You mentioned how money was something that was a standard for, um, basically, for regulating markets, and it wasn't necessarily how people would come to agreement on something, it wasn't discourse, it wasn't communication, but money played a very important role in building that society and how society changed, and that that was something that was a market force that was outside of the, let's say, the state's sphere, and I I would say that is true, and there are many benefits to having markets, they work very well in many different ways. However, there are also many different ways where markets have failures. But the thing I want to point out now is actually reading a book or listening to an audiobook today, and the guy brought up the point about uh, money. And he talks from a standpoint of... uh, he's He's an engineer. He was writing in the 20s, and he's the one that coined the term technocracy. And so he's looking from a scientific approach. And he says that scientific instruments that measure things need to be exact, and that's kind of an important thing. You don't have the value of an inch or a foot or a meter changing that, that wouldn't really work out. We live in a scientific age and an age of reason, and so you can't have a standard that is extremely variable and volatile. However, when you look at money, that's exactly what it is. So it there are some issues there when you're using money as a medium of making I guess, regulating systems and regulating markets, there are some issues there. Number one, and its volatility, it's not a set standard that stays the same that you can use as a standardized tool but also, when you're talking historically, money was something that was independent of the state. You had states that did produce money and coinage and things like this, but they were largely on the gold standard or something similar where the state didn't completely control the flow of money, how much money was out there, inflation, all these types of things. They didn't really have much of a say in that, and usually when they tried to and they would debase a currency, we see throughout history that that did not have very good effects. That Markets crashed, and uh, the values declined, and there are big issues there. But largely, states were not involved in money the way that they are today. So in today's markets, money does play an important role that is similar to then. But states have complete control over currencies now. We have these fiat currencies that are not based on a gold standard or any standard. Governments can literally create money out of thin air and use that to steer monetary policy. And there are, obviously, pros and cons to this. But that's another thing that really stood out to me. When you talk about how markets lead to a centralized state, Um I, I, I can see this. And from my perspective, and it's something that um, I heard from someone else, that corporations need a state in order to reach their full potential, truly. Because If a corporation or an actor in a market can have access to the state for regulation, for government contracts, for government funds in general, these types of things, then they can form a monopoly. They can dominate a market. They can keep their competitors out. They can get guaranteed income from a state, from the government, and uh, that is something that is very beneficial if you are a corporation or a player in the market, and so that I would definitely say that market players encourage the rise of a centralized state, and I would fully agree with you on that. I would say that if we look at the historical way that this has played out, typically when you see the rise and fall of empires, empires, as they rise and hit their peak, they get more and more centralized, and in doing so, they gain more and more control, they're more and more efficient, there are many benefits to this. But the negative is that we do see time and time again that you see corruption become a bigger and bigger player as these states and empires get more and more centralized, and they start instituting more and more control, get more and more strict. There's more and more corruption, and usually that leads to the fall of said empire, and it happens over and over again throughout history. So while I would agree that markets lead to a centralized state for many different reasons— I would also say that a centralized state, as it corrupts, also then leads to a greater focus on the private sphere and on markets because you have this pendulum swing, you have this reactionary effect that. If a state is very centralized with a lot of control and there is corruption there, they tighten their grip, they take advantage, corporations take advantage of this, markets take advantage of having the state, in a sense, as a tool that they do many in many different ways, and that spurs a reaction from the private sphere, from individuals, from people uh, like many of the anti-establishment movements that are going on today, we do see this, and we do see a reaction that's going on there um you've got the renaissance and the enlightenment periods where you had this rebirth and learning, you have more of a liberal and multifaceted education with the rise of humanism from scholasticism, and the idea of humanism does parallel with today, where there's a bigger focus on the humanities and the STEM fields. This is something that's really getting pushed in today's education system. You also had, through the Enlightenment, many individualistic ideologies, and that's another thing that is becoming very big in today's world with... Things Things like the social media phenomenon where it's all about me, or you look at the gig economy and it's very individualized and splitting apart from this more collective approach to markets. Um, You had theological debates going on through the Reformation, and that really mirrors the political debates that are going on today. You had the rise of the printing press, just like the rise of the Internet and how that Technology really influenced all of these different shifts that were going on, and in many ways allowed them to happen and pushed them along. You also have a focus on natural rights which we hear all the time today about basic human rights. That is a big deal today of uh, people are they have a right to healthcare, they have a right to a, a purposeful job. There's all these different things that people have these basic human rights for and that definitely does parallel the argument for natural rights back in the enlightenment time. And obviously there are differences in all these examples, but we see all these things and the other enlightenment issue would be representative governance that that was the ideal for a society. And again, that's the big push today. And that's why a lot of people have issues is that they see the influence that corporations have. They see the corruption in the state and they do not see a whole lot of representation of their personal views and their personal opinions and the things that other people they talk to care about. And so they don't feel very represented and that in a way, is helping to fuel this anti-establishment mentality that is going on in today's world. So I'm seeing a lot of... Parallels here, and we see these trends that happened historically. We see modern trends that are happening as well But I guess the key takeaway for me is that there are some major Differences in that it seems like it was more relational and more intentional when these shifts were going on in historic time periods We're referencing mainly like the Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment period and When you look at those same movements and the parallels that are occurring today, they're very similar But they're highly controlled by big tech and the flow of information. They are highly focused on consumerism and entertainment. They are not, uh, I would say they don't have the same depth that it seems like these movements and shifts had in the historical period we're looking at. And so I, I would say that there probably are some issues here. You mentioned strategic communication and strategic action these power players that are involved let's say these the institutional players like governments and corporations they're definitely using strategic action to influence individuals in society and that is having that's having a very big effect and it is very effective on the populace and so it, there are some questions that i have with how this is going to play out obviously i would like it to play out in a similar way where we have the enlightenment period that everybody looks at as being this big positive thing that happened with society and progress started then into modern society but there are some big issues that are still looming over all of this do you enjoy what you're hearing on panoptic
1: pod is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.